today we're going to read the bookends of the story of Samson, the beginning and the end. So we begin in Judges chapter 13. We'll read initially from verses 1 to 7. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. A certain man of Zorah, named Manoah, from the clan of the Danites, had a wife who was sterile and remained childless. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, You are sterile and childless, but you are going to conceive and have a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink and that you do not eat anything unclean because you will conceive and give birth to a son. No razor may be used on his head because the boy is to be a Nazarite set apart to God from birth and he will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Then the woman went to her husband and told him, A man of God came to me. He looked like an angel of God. Very awesome. I didn't ask him where he came from, and he didn't tell me his name. But he said to me, You will conceive and give birth to a son. Now then, drink no wine or other fermented drink, and do not eat anything unclean, because the boy will be a Nazarite of God from birth until the day of his death. And then if you flip over a few pages to chapter 16, we'll take up the end of the story from verse 4. So reading from verse 4 in Judges 16. Sometime later, he, that Samson, fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. The rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, See if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength and how we can overpower him so that we might tie him up and subdue him. Each one of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Tell me the secret of your great strength and how you can be tied up and subdued. Samson answered her, If anyone ties me with seven fresh thongs that have not been dried, I'll become as weak as any other man. Then the rulers of the Philistines brought her seven fresh thongs that had not been tied, and she tied him with them. With men hidden in the room, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the thongs as easily as a piece of string snaps when it comes close to a flame. So the secret of his strength was not discovered. Then Delilah said to Samson, You've made a fool of me. You lied to me. Come now, tell me, how can you be tied? He said, If anyone ties me securely with new ropes that have never been used, I'll become as weak as any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and tied him with them. Then... With men hidden in the room, she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the ropes off his arms as if they were threads. Delilah then said to Samson, Until now you've been making a fool of me and lying to me. Now tell me, how can you be tied? He replied, 
If you weave the seven braids of my hair into the fabric on the loom and tighten it, I'll become as weak as any other man. So while he was sleeping, Delilah took the seven braids of his head, wove them into the fabric, and tightened it with the pin. Again she called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He woke up from his sleep and pulled up the pin and the loom with the fabric. Then she said to him, How can you say I love you when you won't confide in me? This is the third time you've made a fool of me and haven't told me the secret of your great strength. With such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was tired to death. So he told her everything. No razor has ever been used on my head, he said, because I've been a Nazarite set apart to God since birth. If my head were to be shaved, my strength would leave me and I would become as weak as any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her everything, she sent word to the rulers of the Philistines, come back once more, he's told me everything. So the rulers of the Philistines returned with the silver in their hands. Having put him to sleep on her lap, she called a man to shave off the seven braids of his hair and so began to subdue him. And his strength left him. Then she called, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. But he didn't know that the Lord had left him. Then the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes and took him down to Gaza. Binding him with bronze shackles, they sent him to grinding in the prison. But the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now the rulers of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to celebrate, saying, Our god has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. When the people saw him, they praised their god, saying, Our god has delivered our enemy into our hands, the one who laid waste to our land and multiplied our slain. While they were in high spirits, they shouted, Bring out Samson to entertain us. And so they called Samson out of the prison, and he performed for them. When they stood him among the pillars, Samson said to the servant who held his hand, Put me where I can feel the pillars that support the temple, so that I may lean against them. Now the temple was crowded with men and women. All the rulers of the Philistines were there, and on the roof were about 3,000 men and women watching Samson perform. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, O sovereign Lord, remember me. O God, please strengthen me just once more and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Then Samson reached towards the two central pillars on which the temple stood, bracing himself against them, his right hand on one and his left hand on the other, Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he pushed with all his might and down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus he killed many more when he died 
than while he lived. Then his brothers and his whole father's family went down to get him. They brought him back and buried him between Zorah and Eshtael in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had led Israel 20 years. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that, uh, Father, as we look at your word this morning and consider the life of Samson, Father, that you will teach us from your word. Father, take the chaff that I have written and, Father, winnow it away. And, Father, may the words of your spirit speak deeply into the hearts of your people this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, for the past month or so, we've been working our way through the book of Judges. A familiar cycle has emerged. God is faithful, but his people aren't. The people of Israel abandon God and turn to the pretend gods of the people that they've permitted to continue to live in the land. And as the people of Israel give themselves into the hands of these pretend gods, God gives the people of Israel into the hands of the inventors of these pretend gods. And the people of Israel suffer oppression, cruelty and famine. After a season of judgment, God raises up a judge to save his people from their oppressors. And throughout the lifetime of the judge, Israel's people enjoy some degree of peace and security. But when the judge dies, the cycle begins again. We read back in Judges chapter 2 from verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. Unlike their fathers, they quickly turned from the way in which their fathers had walked, the way of obedience to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers, following other gods and serving and worshipping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. And so we came to Othniel, then to Shamgar. Shamgar was followed by Ehud, who was in turn followed by Deborah. Next came Gideon, probably the most famous of the judges we've encountered so far. And Gideon was followed by a string of lesser-known judges who we've skipped over. And today we come to probably the most famous judge of all, the bigger-than-life, long-haired, muscle-bound hero with just one thing on his mind, Samson. Samson might be a man's man, but if Samson was around, you'd want to lock up your daughters. Though come to think of it, there's not much point in doing that. That would be an exercise in futility in the face of the irresistible force of Samson. Just what should we make of this character who breaks every mould, not to mention rope, chain and city gate that gets in his way? 
To understand Samson, we need to go, well, to the beginning. Samson's not your average judge. He's not your average Bible hero. His story is unusual because it begins with an account of the foretelling of his birth. And that already ought to make us sit up and take notice. Think about the company he's in. Who else had their birth foretold? Well, Isaac, Samuel, Josiah, John the Baptist, and Jesus. Listen again to the words of the angel to Manoah's wife in chapter 13, verse 3. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, You are sterile and childless, but you're going to conceive and have a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink, and that you do not eat anything unclean, because you'll conceive and give birth to a son. No razor may be used on his head, because the boy is to be a Nazarite, set apart to God from birth, and he will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Did you hear that? This boy is to be set apart to God from birth, and he will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. This boy, not yet a twinkle in his father's eye, is a deliverer, a saviour, a man who will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of her enemies. Now, up till now, we've had a constant pattern. Israel's in trouble. Israel calls out to God for help in their distress. God relents from his judgment because he can bear Israel's misery no longer and chooses a judge through whom he'll bring about their deliverance. But Samson doesn't quite fit that pattern. Israel's in trouble. They've been in the hands of the Philistines for 40 years now. But this time, Israel is so far gone, so lost, that they no longer even have the sense to cry out for help and deliverance. They just accept their lot. This saviour is entirely God's initiative. God's heart is broken by the sight of his barren people existing without hope and he enters the life of a barren woman existing without hope with an amazing promise. Your inconceivable son will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Look closely at what God has said to Manoah's wife. Samson is a promised deliverer, but he isn't the deliverer. He's the start, the down payment on a promise that another will complete. But nonetheless, salvation, deliverance, will begin with Samson. Now, it's important when we're looking at the life of Samson to keep a careful eye on what God is doing through Samson and not to get distracted by the flawed man through whom God is acting. At God's direction, Manoah and his wife have set Samson apart, consecrated him to God. The word Nazarite means consecrated or separated. Nazarites were required to abstain from alcohol, 
to ensure that they were not defiled by any dead body and to allow their hair to grow uncut and untrimmed as a visible sign of their consecration to God. Now you can find all the details about that in Numbers chapter 6. And it's interesting that Numbers 6 concludes with the natural consequence of consecration to the Lord. Blessing. You see, the Nazarite instructions conclude with and immediately followed by instructions on blessing. In, the, in Numbers chapter 6, verse 23, we read God telling Moses to tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. It's no coincidence that those two come together. In Judges 13, 24 to 25, we read, The woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson. He grew and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir in him while he was in Manahay Dan between Zorah and Eshtael. See, there's even significance in the name. Samson means little son, a reference to the face of God shining upon him. Now, Judges 14 to 16 gives us a few snippets from the life of the grown man. If we didn't have the benefit of the scriptures, of the scriptures' insight into what God is doing, we'd look at this testosterone-driven, foolish firebrand and shake our heads because he's the very antithesis of an example we should follow. Samson might have been devoted by his parents to the Lord. He might have been consecrated and set apart. But the evidence of his life, as we read these pages, is a man who isn't devoted to the Lord, who has complete disregard for almost everything that God has commanded. On the face of it, it's an account of a man who's using God to get everything he wants. But the parenthetical verse in Judges 14, verse 4, tells us what's really going on. His parents didn't know that this was from the Lord, who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines, for at that time they were ruling over Israel. What's really happening here is that God is using Samson to begin to deliver his people from the Philistines. And it's the flaws in Samson's character, much more than his prodigious God-given strength, that set the wheels in motion and keep them turning. First, Samson is besotted with a Philistine beauty and declares that he must marry her because, well, she's the one. His parents try to dissuade him. They plead with him to marry within the faith, within the covenant community. But Samson will have none of that, and nothing will stand in his way, not even the young lion that he tears apart with his bare hands. Samson gets to talk to the girl. He really likes her. Arrangements are made, and in due course, Samson returns for the wedding feast. Now, rules just don't apply to men like Samson. So when, on the way to the wedding, he comes across the carcass of the lion he ripped apart, far from avoiding the dead, rotting carcass, as you might expect from a Nazarite, 
He shoves his hand right into it to feast on the wild honey from the beehive that was being constructed inside. And the wedding feast doesn't go well. Samson's father-in-law provides him with 30 groomsmen. And in the midst of drinking together, Samson makes a bet with them that they won't be able to solve his riddle. Stakes of 30 suits of clothes are set, and the riddle is a cryptic reference to the dead lion that no one but Samson knows about. With smug certainty, Samson is already thinking how handsome he's going to look in his fine new wardrobe. But if you can't mess with Samson in a physical contest, there are other ways that a people can fight, other ways to overcome his power. A little pressure on his wife, some coaxing, and days on days of feminine tears, and the secret's out. The sure bet is lost. Samson's outraged. He settles his debt at the expense of the lives of 30 Philistine men from the neighbouring town and storms out, leaving the object of his undying affection behind to be married off to his best man. Some months go by. Samson decides he still wants her after all and goes back to claim his bride, only to be told she's no longer available. Tensions escalate and the young firebrand lights up the countryside by really setting the foxes in the henhouse. 150 pairs of foxes, in fact. And to make it really interesting, their tails are tied together and each pair is dragging a burning torch as they run like crazed things through the ripened wheat fields. Samson's blazing fury has set everything ablaze, condemning the Philistine community to the misery of famine for the year ahead. The violence escalates. The Philistines take revenge on those who brought this calamity upon them by burning Samson's wife and her father to death. And Samson slaughters the Philistines in return. When Samson finally heads off to his man cave to cool down, the Philistines up the ante. They demand that the men of Judah turn Samson over to them. And 3,000 of the brave men of Judah, the descendants of the one tribe that had been most faithful in carrying out God's commands on entering the promised land, well, these 3,000 brave men meekly go off to carry out the instructions of their political masters. They chastise Samson for rebelling against lawful authority, restraining him with a couple of strong new ropes and haul him off to be handed over to the Philistine authorities. Seeing him securely bound, the Philistines rush forward to capture their helpless prize. But the ropes don't hold, and Philistine army is no match for a donkey's jawbone in Samson's right hand. The Philistine death toll grows by another thousand men. And so the pattern is laid for 20 years of Samson's period as the judge of Israel. In view of the time, I'm not going to dwell on the incident in which the judge of the prostituted people of Israel spends a night with a prostitute, walking away with not just the keys to the city gate, 
but with the city gates themselves. Nor am I going to spend much time talking about his love affair with Delilah. Once again, Samson is seduced by a woman he simply can't resist. And relentless tears and accusations wear down his reluctance to talk about the secret of his strength. To get some peace to sleep, he spins his dear old mum's story about the source of his strength lying in his unshaven hairstyle and falls asleep with his head on his lover's lap without a care in the world. It's all there in Judges 16. With such nodding, she prodded him day after day until he was tired to death. So he told her everything. No razor has ever been used on my head, he said, because I've been a Nazarite, set apart to God since birth. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me and I would be as weak as any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her everything, she sent word to the rulers of the Philistines, come back once more. He's told me everything. So the rulers of the Philistines returned with silver in their hands. Having put him to sleep on her lap, she called a man to shave off the seven braids of his hair and so began to subdue him. Yes, you see, he told her everything, but it didn't matter. He didn't believe a word of it. Taking up again from verse 20, then she called Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. But he didn't know that the Lord had left him. Then the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes and took him down to Gaza, binding him with bronze shackles. They set him to grinding in the prison. You see, Samson, God's deliverer, paid no attention to any of God's other laws and commandments, neither the ones that applied to all of God's people or the ones that applied particularly to Nazarites. His strength was always there when he needed it, and everyone knows that muscles come from exercise, training, and hearty eating, and have nothing to do with personal grooming. No one is more surprised than Samson when his power was gone. In fact, he didn't even know that the Lord had left him. So how's Samson doing? Not well at all. We've seen the hand of God, but it appears that Samson has been pretty much in the dark. The Lord has come upon him in power, but in the biblical account, the name of the Lord has hardly crossed Samson's lips. And now, with his eyes gone, he's completely in the dark. So why is Samson special? Why do the scriptures put him in the elite company of Isaac, Samuel, Josiah, John the Baptist and Jesus, one of the select group of men whose birth was prophetically foretold? Isaac, Samuel, Josiah and John the Baptist all point to Jesus. God uses these flawed men to point to the one who will complete the deliverance of God's people, not just from the oppression of the Philistines, but from the oppression of sin and death. You see, Israel 
reveals Jesus by being the first fruit of the Abrahamic covenant, whose life is offered as a sacrifice to God, just as Jesus is. Paul puts it this way in Colossians 1. He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the church, the body, and he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Samuel is the priest who restores the true worship of God after the chaos and disorder of the period of the judges. Samuel is the one about whom God says in 1 Samuel chapter 2, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. I will firmly establish his house and he will minister before my anointed one always. So Samuel reveals Jesus, the faithful priest, who is faithful in everything and who today stands at the right hand of God. Josiah was the king who re-established the keeping of God's law. In 2 Kings chapter 23 we read, This he, that is Josiah, did to fulfill the requirements of the law written in the book that Hilkiah, the priest, had discovered in the temple of the law. Neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his strength in accordance with all the law of Moses. So King Josiah reveals King Jesus whose kingdom knows no end and who perfectly fulfilled the requirements of the law. And of course, John the Baptist also a Nazarite, also an eater of wild honey, literally reveals Jesus as the Son of God. When he baptises Jesus, and we hear in Mark 1, at that time Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptised by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. So how does Samson reveal Jesus? Where is this to be found in the story we've considered? Well, we're not there yet, because Samson reveals Jesus in his death. Delilah has portrayed Samson for some pieces of silver. Samson is bound and turned over to a foreign power to be tortured and made sport of. And Samson, who was once impetuous, self-assured and arrogant, is now the helpless circus act, an object of mockery and sport. The humbled, bound, scourged, God-forsaken Samson, then does the unthinkable, the unimaginable. He prays. 
Then Samson prayed to the Lord, O sovereign Lord, remember me. O God, please strengthen me just once more and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. You see, Samson reveals Jesus, the victorious deliverer, by showing us how this victory is won. Samson triumphs over his enemies as he willingly goes to his own death. He dies with his arms outstretched as the very fabric of the temple is rent asunder. And his death turns the victory celebration of God's enemy's triumph over God's chosen one into the occasion of their utter defeat. For Samson, it was his greatest victory, but it was only a partial victory, merely the beginning of the deliverance that God would bring to completion in Jesus. Samson, like Isaac, Samuel, Josiah and John the Baptist, died and was buried. And his burial place became his resting place, the marker that proved that he was real, the place where his body decayed and returned to dust. Then his brothers and his father's whole family went down to get him. They brought him back and buried him between Zorah and Eshtaol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. For Jesus, the triumph of the cross where the power of sin was defeated once for all, also led to a tomb. But that tomb is empty. And its emptiness is proof of so much more than Jesus' historical reality. The empty tomb is the proof of the ultimate deliverance won by the ultimate judge and saviour. Deliverance from the bondage of death. So don't get taken in by the muscles, scandal and testosterone, the femme fatales, the sweet talk, the lovesickness, the scandal and the betrayal. These are but distractions. The real story here is God at work, delivering and rescuing his people, even when they're so bemired in the consequences of their rebellion that they lack the sense even to ask for help. The account of Samson is preserved in the scriptures to point us to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the perfect deliverer, whose completed victory brings with it the fulfilment of all God's promises. For all those who put their trust and faith in him, his victory brings the blessing of the certainty of an eternal inheritance, eternal life in God's forever kingdom. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, we give you praise as we see behind the events of history and see your mighty hand at work in Samson. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us hearts that are truly consecrated to you so that we might live lives completely devoted to you. Lord God, work mightily within us so that we learn to live in total dependence on you so that our every word, our consistent action and our humble attitude all point clearly to Jesus, your only begotten Son, the true priest, the true King, the true mighty Deliverer, with whom you are truly pleased. Amen.